Our ushers will be uh, making their way down the aisle to deliver uh, Bibles to anybody who has a need for a Bible. So if you came today and uh, forgot the scripture at home or you don't have one of your own, please raise your hand. We would love to provide a, a Bible for you so that you can be following along with us as we study uh, Luke chapter 24. Go ahead and turn there so that you'll be ready as we uh, prepare our hearts to read and to be affected by God's holy word. Uh, during this time of preaching, I'll be sharing truths from the Scripture. And I don't want you to think that this has to be a one-way conversation. We want people to grow in their faith. We want people who do not have a faith in Christ yet. We want to help them remove every roadblock to trusting in the Lord Jesus. So if something is preached from this pulpit, or you learn something today, or you read something in the Scripture that gives you questions, and you don't quite understand it, and, and it's not answered during the course of our service this morning, then please, when this... This time of preaching is done, then come and get me, come and get one of the elders or, uh, or, or the person who bought you, just turn to them and say, I want to talk more about this. I want, I want to engage in this information. I don't want it to just be uh, an educational time. I want the Lord to, to do something in my life with what we have heard today. So we really encourage you to be bold in that. We want to pursue understanding. We're not just here to show you what we believe. We're here to show you what the Lord God has taught so that you might also see the truth of Scripture and, and prayerfully through faith, believe. So if you've got your Bibles, please turn them uh, to chapter 24 of Luke. Uh, this morning in our sunrise service, we handled the last section of verses that are found in chapter 23. Luke told us of a man named Joseph. It was Joseph from a town called Arimathea, but he had since moved and was established in Jerusalem. He was a member of the council called the Sanhedrin, the very council that condemned Jesus to death. But Joseph had not agreed with the desire of the council to do away with Jesus. After Jesus is executed, Joseph went forward to Pontius Pilate and asked if he might release the body to Joseph so that he could give it a proper burial. Pilate granted his request, and as Joseph took Jesus down from the cross and brought his body to an unused tomb, he laid him to rest. And he was followed along the way by a number of, of women disciples, women who had ministered with Jesus as Jesus had for the last three years taught the scripture and exposited from the word of the Old Testament as he had gone and made more disciples. These women had been very instrumental uh, to his earthly mission. And so they followed Joseph of Arimathea to the tomb where the body of Jesus was laid. And these women are going to be the main characters of chapter 24's opening 12 verses, which we will study today. Now, I want you to keep in mind that the disciples are in a state of dread. They are confused at this point. They had seen the mighty power of their Lord. They had witnessed His miracles. They had heard His powerful teaching. They had seen His authority on display over the, the nature that had been created by God, over demons as He had cast them out and sent them away. They had seen His wisdom as He preached the truth to people. So how could it be possible that when it was all on the line and when Jesus had the opportunity to display his authority and establish himself as king in the line of David, instead he chose to stay quiet. He allowed himself to be condemned as a sinner. And then he was crucified. How could this be? They are still in a state of shock. And though a couple of days has passed... They still don't know how they should react to the loss of their Savior, Jesus Christ. And so here we are in Luke chapter 24, the last chapter of this wonderful book. 
And we will read together today from the Lord's Word, starting with verse 1. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other woman with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Would you please bow with me for a word of prayer as we prepare our hearts to receive what God wants to give us in his scripture. Spirit, we ask today that you would please allow us to do more than just learn. Though your word is very informative, God, the reason you gave it to us, the reason you have shown yourself to us by the words that are preserved in these pages was not just to educate, but to transform. And so we pray that this morning, God, you would accomplish that very thing in our hearts and in our minds the story of Jesus is a story of redemption, Lord God. And we trust, Lord, that there are so many more in this world that need to be redeemed. God, the weight of sin is still clearly heavy upon your creation. There are many who are still desperately sick and need a physician. And so, God, I pray that you would accomplish that task today. Help those of us who have trusted in you, Lord, to experience again the newness, the wonder of of seeing you do what only you could do, Lord God. I pray, Father, that we would get a glimpse of your awesome power, that it would humble us, that we would not come before you brashly or flippantly, Lord God, but that we would approach your throne with a reverent heart, desiring to be taught by the Master. God, you are good. Please teach us today the power of your Scripture. We lift up these words in the name of of the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. When Joseph took the body of Jesus down from the cross and prepared it for burial, that process needed to be accomplished quickly because the Jewish calendar marked the beginning of the Sabbath as sunset on Friday evening. In your notes, there is a chart that tries to show the three-day time period uh, that elapsed over the course of the last several verses we've been studying. One of the very important Ten Commandments that governed the way that the Israelites were supposed to worship God was the law of the Sabbath day. That since God made the heavens and the earth in the course of six days and rested on the seventh day, so too should His special people follow that pattern in their own lives. That for six day, they are, days they were to be efficient and productive and to work and to labor 
And on that seventh day, they should set apart time specifically not to to get things done or to make progress in the house, but instead to really set their hearts and minds upon the things of the Lord God. Once the sun was down on Friday, the Sabbath had begun and a faithful Israelite was not to do work. So Jesus' burial was done in haste. They hoped to complete it before the sun set. The women who had followed Joseph were determined to return and prepare the body of Jesus to proper Jewish standards at their first opportunity. So they rested Friday night and then through Saturday. By sundown Saturday, it was too dark to accomplish anything, even though the Sabbath had been completed. And so they came at early dawn on Sunday, as soon as the sun came up, which shows that they were determined to return uh, at the first possible opportunity to honor the fallen body of their Master Jesus. And as we begin chapter 24, it is that first day of the week, Sunday. Ever since the empty tomb was discovered on that Sunday, on that third day after Jesus' crucifixion, the New Covenant Church has considered Sunday to be the designated day that believers gather together to worship Jesus and to celebrate His resurrection. That's not just an Easter thing, by the way. It's an every Sunday thing. The, the historical record of Scripture gives us evidence that this began very early in the early church. Acts 20, verse 7 says that they gathered on the first day of the week to break bread, signifying that they were coming together so that the practice of communion, the, the Lord's table, might be observed, that they might remember the great work that Jesus did when He defeated death and rose on that wonderful Sunday morning. 1 Corinthians 16, 2 It says, take up a collection on the first day of every week. Instructs the people of the church in Corinth that they are to systematically prepare for the mission that God had called the whole church to by collecting offerings as we did just a few moments ago and keeping them in reserve so that missionaries could be sent out, so that church planting could be accomplished, and so that those who were in need and were depending on the church for support might be cared for. Revelation 1.10, the Apostle John receives this amazing vision that becomes the book of Revelation. And he receives it while he is in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Meaning he had gathered with the saints to worship the Lord, and the Lord overcame him and gave him this great, this great vision, this picture of heaven in its throne room. And so these ladies have seen a lot in the last 48 hours. They were present for the crucifixion of Jesus on Friday afternoon. They were there to see him suffer by taking the sins of the world upon his shoulders. They were also present when his body was taken down from the cross and laid in the tomb. They saw where it was placed. With their very own eyes, they witnessed the location of his burial. There are many who read the scriptures. They read these things that Jesus died on a cross, that Jesus was buried, and on the third day he rose again. And they cannot bring themselves to accept that Jesus could have actually risen from the dead. And so there are arguments that are made, there are, there are conjectures that the women must have come back possibly to the wrong tomb, that maybe they went to that garden and they, they got confused and they went to a tomb that that had not yet had a person laid in it, and so they thought that Jesus rose from the dead, but in reality, they were mistaken. Friends, these women were eyewitnesses to his burial. They had a deep conviction to return and honor their master. 
They did not go through these things paying attention lightly. They were engaged in this process. And so it is, it is highly unlikely, I would say impossible for them, to come back to the wrong tomb. Additionally, archaeologists who have dug up the remains of the cities and the civilization there in Jerusalem over the years have found that almost every single Jewish tomb is constructed in such a way that the door is rectangular and that a large slab, rectangular slab of limestone is used to plug the door of those tombs. But we read in scripture, and archaeologists have also confirmed this, that the very richest people in society would sometimes have tombs with a circular door in which a, a, a track was carved in the limestone so that door could be rolled back and in order for families to place the remains of newly passed away members in with their family members in those family tombs. So Jesus would have been buried in a rare type of tomb. It wouldn't have looked like all the other tombs in the garden. It was one of the, the tombs that only the wealthiest people, someone such as Joseph of Arimathea, who was a, a high judge of Israel, could have afforded. So the, the idea that these women came back to the wrong tomb does not hold historical water. The women who have returned have come with spices. They have come to prepare and wrap the body of Jesus in more linens that it already had been wrapped in. We read from the other accounts that, that Joseph of Arimathea was joined by a man named Nicodemus, who had been a Pharisee and believed secretly for a time until the cross caused him to be open with his belief in Jesus. The Nicodemus had brought some spices, but apparently it was not enough to properly show honor to the body of Jesus. And so these women, in the time between his burial and the time that the Sabbath was completed and they were able to return on Sunday morning, had gathered some equipment, they had gathered more linens and more spices so that they could go and show greater honor to the dead body of Jesus Christ. These women love Jesus. They want to honor his memory. But there is a key attitude that is missing amongst these women and truly amongst all of the disciples that we read about in Scripture. As we observe the demeanor and the actions of these followers of Jesus after the Lord God is crucified, so far as we can tell by Scripture, there isn't any kind of expectation that Jesus was going to rise again. No one confidently applauded Jesus' death as a necessary victory, the only ones who are rejoicing are the chief priests and the, the lying scribes who have claimed that Jesus committed these sins that he never committed. They believe in their minds that they have won, that Jesus, their opponent, is dead now. They are the ones who are filled with joy and happiness. Though there is a desire to honor Jesus in the hearts of these women and mark his passing with dignity, there is no eager anticipation that the best is yet to come that the story is not fully told yet. The disciples are not sitting with bated breath, waiting without doubt that Jesus would display his miraculous power by overcoming death and showing his victory over the grave. In their minds, Jesus has died, he is dead, and their hope that God's kingdom was truly coming, in a sense, died with him. If you are here with us this morning and you consider Easter to be a, a nice story made up by faithful people who want to inspire one another, but you can't see any logical reason to believe that the historical man Jesus actually rose from the dead on the third day after his burial, you're in good company 
because Jesus' own disciples couldn't believe it either. They had a hard time accepting this amazing miracle as true. They could not fathom the idea that Jesus would come back to life and stroll out of his tomb victorious. That wasn't something that fit into their worldview. So we don't come here today gathered together as a church to commemorate normal everyday events. We don't celebrate Easter as a day that a good man died. We come to glorify a God who is supernatural, who has power that we don't fully understand. And we come to celebrate what he did in rising from the dead on the third day, which is outside of what we could possibly consider normal. Consider that as we examine the historical record. Keep that in mind, that these are hard-to-believe things because they could only be accomplished by a God who is greater than man and who exists beyond the scope of the physical universe. Later on in this chapter, the resurrected Jesus physically appears to his 11 remaining disciples, and though he shows them his hands and the holes that were made by the nails that held him to the cross, and though he shows him the hole in his side that the soldier made by piercing him to make sure that he was deceased, they still struggled to believe that he was before them in the flesh. Verse 41 of the same chapter in Luke is going to say, and we'll study this in a couple of weeks, that they disbelieved for joy. Now that's a strange phrase. They disbelieved for joy. What it means is that their skepticism was a way of protecting their joy, of guarding their hearts. If they believed in their mind, if they believed that Jesus rose from the dead and then they turned out to be wrong, if it was indeed not true, then they would experience an even greater agony and grief than the agony they had already experienced by losing their dear friend once. Many of you have been praying for my family. Thank you. Missy and I, the boys, are looking to bring a foster child into our home, and so it's been a long process. And uh, we received a telephone call on Thursday. And on Thursday, we were told that there was an eight-day-old baby girl who um, was born with some drug addiction problems, and she needed a foster home. They had placed her in a home, but they weren't ready for that. And that's something that my wife and I have a great heart for. We would really love to be able to minister to a child through that difficult early stage of life who doesn't have a family to care for it. And so we were elated. We were very excited that you know, all this prayer and all this waiting was, was coming to pass, that we were going to be able to finally do what we have asked God permission to do all this time, which is minister to a foster child. And so they said, listen, everything's basically been decided. You're going to get this child between 10.30 a.m., and 11 a.m. on Friday morning. And it was about 8 o'clock a.m. on Friday morning when we received a call that a family member showed up from a couple cities away and came that they didn't know about and said that they would take that child into their home, which ended uh, the journey for us in that, that circumstance, but was good for that child because that little baby is now going to be with family, with, with cousins and uncles and aunts, and, and that is truly a blessing but as we go through this process and we wait again, this is the fourth time when we've had a possibility that fell out. And, and it's hard for us to not become hard-hearted and to not disbelieve for joy when we get those phone calls. To not say, well, 
when it actually happens, we'll let ourselves become excited. We will we'll believe and we'll, we'll, we'll breathe that sigh of relief. And I, I think that's perhaps kind of a, a, a picture of what these disciples felt. I don't think it wasn't that they didn't want to believe. It's that they could not fathom it. And their, their finite minds were struggling to grasp. They needed a faith that was bigger than their own faith. And so they couldn't accept the fact that Jesus had risen again. When these devoted women arrived at the tomb, they, they're not going there to greet a risen Jesus. They're going there to anoint a deceased Jesus. That is what they are doing in their minds. So it goes without saying that they were surprised by what they found when they arrived there that morning. Mark 16.3 tells us that the women weren't really sure how they were going to get access to the tomb. They weren't strong enough to roll away the stone's door, but they were going to figure it out when they got there. Perhaps they were hoping that the Roman soldiers that would undoubtedly be positioned to guard that tomb so that no one would steal the body of Jesus, perhaps they would grant them mercy and allow them to anoint the body of Christ. They didn't know, but they brought all the materials they needed and they were going to go on faith hoping that that door would be opened so that they can do what they came to do. But once they got there, they saw that the circular stone that previously blocked that door, had already been rolled back and there were no soldiers to hinder their progress. So they took advantage of their good fortune and they entered in. But inside of the tomb, the body of Jesus was no longer where they had seen it laid the Friday before. And while they stood gathered, perplexed at that scene, not knowing what to think, they were greeted by two men in dazzling apparel. Um, some of you are in dazzling apparel today. Well done. But that's not what they're talking about here. These men were clearly not just human beings. They were shining and shimmering with the glory of God. They were angelic messengers. And the women responded in the way that people respond almost every time an angelic being appears to people in the biblical record. They were terrified. And they fell down and bowed in, in a sign of reverence to these godly messengers. The angels quickly point out to them the irony that they should be looking for Jesus somewhere else. This is where dead men lie. When they should be expecting Jesus to be alive, they're in the wrong place to find a living Christ. Verses 5 through 6 says, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Of course Jesus wasn't in the tomb because Jesus was alive and well. Tombs are for dead people. And yet the idea of a risen Savior is still far from the minds of these women. The disciples couldn't blame Jesus for their lack of belief. They couldn't say, well, if Jesus was more clear about his resurrection, he was so vague and so ambiguous. That's not the case at all. The angel points out that Jesus had given them every reason to expect a resurrection. Remember how he told you, says the angel, while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. The book of Luke records three specific times when Jesus shared his destiny with his disciples. He revealed the things that were to come. There were likely even more examples of this, but let's examine for a moment these three that are given to us in Luke. Chapter 9, verses 22, or 21 and 22 says... And he strictly charged and commanded them, his disciples, to tell this to no one, 
saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Be raised. Jesus laid out plainly four specific elements of God's plan for him, doesn't he? First of all, he shows that Jesus is going to have to suffer many things. That in and of itself could have meant an imprisonment, it could have meant lashes, it could have meant ridicule. But he goes on to explain he would be rejected, not just by the masses, he would be rejected by the very leaders of Israel who were responsible for the teaching of God's word, who should have known that scripture had clearly proclaimed a Messiah was going to come and should have been able to see through the actions of Jesus and his miraculous signs that he indeed was that very man. Thirdly, he revealed to them that he would be killed. And Peter, for one, was not happy to hear this, was he? The disciples could not swallow the fact that Jesus' life would be taken away. To them, that meant defeat. They could not understand how that would be a part of God's plan. All of these things have already occurred, have they not? In, the, in this instance that, that occurs right here at the side of the tomb, just as he said they would, he has suffered many things. He's been rejected by the chief priests and by the elders and scribes, and he has been killed by Roman soldiers. He's three for four in predictions. You might think that they would expect number four to come to pass in light of his accuracy so far. The fourth thing he had proclaimed, of course, was that on the third day, he would rise. Luke 9, verses 44, or 43 through 45 says, But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. Jesus knows that they are prone to wander in mind, that they are subject to forgetfulness. And so he says, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand the saying. And it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. So he's gone to great lengths to try to assure that they would not forget these scriptures that he has delivered. But they didn't understand and there is a concealing going on. We're not told what that concealing means. It's not laid out for us. It could be a number of things. Perhaps uh, they are... They are not understanding this because their expectations are different than God's mission. They thought Jesus was going to come and reign on a throne and establish a military and, and redefine the borders of Israel and break free from Rome. And since that doesn't match their expectations, they can't see how this piece of the puzzle fits in. Perhaps the enemy had caused th this truth to be concealed from them. We know that Satan had asked Jesus that he would turn over the, the, the disciples, that they might be tempted in the time of the crucifixion and Jesus said that he would pray for them and stand in, in, the, in the way and intercede so that Satan wouldn't be able to stop them from being his disciples. But perhaps before that had happened, he, the enemy had caused them to forget some things. It might even be that the Lord God to accomplish his plans so that you and I would have a record of the people so easily forgetting, perhaps he caused the darkness to come over their memory. We are not told why. We are simply told that it happened. And then Luke recorded in chapter 18, this is only a week or so before the, the apostles and Jesus entered into Jerusalem for that last holy week. He says, and taking the twelve, he said to them, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked 
and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. And so we hear, we see that Jesus had even brought it to their attention just, just days before the events actually occurred, and yet they are still able somehow to disremember what he had warned them about. There's a great irony here. And the irony is this. Those who were enemies of Jesus had remembered what the followers had forgotten. Look at Matthew chapter 27. If you want to turn there, Matthew chapter 27, I'd like to read from you verses 22, uh, 62 through 66. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate. So Jesus has been crucified. And uh, the, the day after, um, the day of preparation, the chief priests are starting to wonder, well, how can we make sure that no one does anything to make it seem as though the prophecies that Jesus prophesied will come true. Verse 63, and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was alive, after three days I will rise, and therefore order the, t- therefore order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people. He has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting the guard. So even the enemies of Jesus were able to remember that he had prophesied that on the third day he would rise again. But his own people did not. So the angel helps them. He refreshes their memory and points them back to the very sayings of Jesus that, has, that have not been clear in their minds until this very moment. Look again at verse 7. I want you to notice something that is very important. The angel tells the woman in verse 7 that Jesus, the Son of Man, must be crucified, buried, and rise. Emphasis on the must. You see, the events we memorialize on Easter were a divine necessity Though they seem brutal to our modern sensibilities and though we, were, we, we, we read them and our, our skin crawls as we hear about this mistreatment because they were so unjust and cruel to our Savior. Though the whole process caused the disciples a great degree of anxiety, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus were all absolutely essential ingredients in Jesus' earthly mission. Why so? Let me give you three reasons today. First of all, it is God's desire to save sinners. And so it must be so. Because God so desired to save a wretch like me and like you, he had to send his son, and his son had to be captured, tortured, he had to die, and he had to rise again. Look at 1 Timothy 2, verses 3 through 4. This, meaning praying for all people, is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Paul tells Timothy that the God they both serve desires all people to be redeemed from their sin. Redeemed from what? From the sin that has separated them from the Lord. 
He's not calling for Jesus to come and save them from a government that has gone out of control. He's not coming to save them from cancer or from diabetes. He's not coming to save them from loneliness or depression. He has come specifically to overwhelm their greatest opponent, which is the very sin that dwells in their own heart, sin that divides them from the Lord God. Friends, there is a cosmic disruption that has caused the soul of every man, woman, and child to be far from the holy and perfect God who created them. Every one of us has sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Our sin is an incredible offense to God. Though we live in a world that normalizes sin and makes excuses for wickedness, God will not have the wool pulled over his eyes. He can tell the difference between good and evil. And he will not allow us to make excuses for unrighteousness. He sees our sin, whether that be lying or stealing, whether that be failing to love your neighbor, whether that be taking what does not belong to you, whether that means disrespecting the name of God. He sees our sin as rebellion against the throne of God. This is serious. It is a rebellion that is punishable by death. But that is not what God desires for his people. He does not desire to destroy all the people that have rebelled against him. Look at John 3, verses 16 through 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. God's desire is to save sinners. And in order for that to happen, sin must be defeated. And there is no other way for sin to be defeated than for Christ to die upon the cross and redeem us to pay the penalty on our behalf. God's desire is that he might come into this world and bring life where death abounds. And so it must happen the way that he prophesied that it would. Secondly, it is God's duty to punish sin. So it must be done. Jesus had to go to the cross and die because he had to punish sin. God has a responsibility to himself, to his own nature. Deuteronomy 32.4 says, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. This declares in very plain language that God is himself without sin. He is absolutely pure and undefiled. His perfection includes justice. And justice is absolutely essential to his being. But he cannot be content to remain perfect while the creation that he has made and that he sustains on a day-to-day -day basis wallows in the wickedness of sin. Psalm 5.4 For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. So God will always be undefiled. But it is not right for God to be pure and holy and then to just sit by while wickedness exists. He is compelled to battle sin and to eradicate wickedness. His light dispels darkness. 
So it is God's duty to punish sin. In order for that to happen, His will must be done in Christ Jesus. His absolutely pure nature cannot sit idly by. Not only that, but His purity and His perfection also necessitates that Jesus always speak the truth. He cannot tell a lie. We read together very clearly the predictions that Jesus made that He would indeed die, that He would be buried and raised on the third day. If nothing else, the fact that Jesus said He would do those things means that they must come to pass. For Jesus Himself is Emmanuel, God in the flesh. And every yes is yes in Him. He must keep every promise. So sin must be punished. And God does not desire to punish us who are clearly sinners. What then can be done? God himself must make a way. He must make a way for sinners like us who are slaves to sin to become set free from that sin and from the debt that we owe to God. That is why Jesus had to die. That is why Christ took our sins upon his own shoulders and bore the punishment of our sins himself because the wage of sin, the proper punishment for rebellion against the giver of life is for life to be removed. We who were guilty are set free by the sufferings of the one who never committed sin himself. The death of Jesus paid the literal sin debt that we all owed to God and set us free. But it could not end with death either. It is God's divine nature to live eternally, so it must happen exactly as this angel reminded them, Jesus told them it would happen. He must rise from the grave. He cannot stay dead. Psalm 90, verse 2, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. There is never a time when God will not be God. God will live forever. He cannot be extinguished. Romans 1.20, For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so man is without excuse. We know that God is greater than us. We know that He is eternal. Christ could not just go to the cross and die and that's the end of it because Jesus is God. He is everlasting upon everlasting, so he must rise from the dead. John 1, verses 1 through 3, In the beginning was the Word, which is another name for Jesus. And the Word, Jesus, was with God. And the Word, Jesus, was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus is not a created being. Yes, he was born in Bethlehem, to a virgin named Mary. But that was not his beginning. That was his materialization. That is when he came into a human nature and took on flesh for our behalf. Jesus existed long before that day. Hebrews 1.8 goes on to say, But of the Son, specifically Jesus Christ, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. This is a Jesus who has always existed and who will reign on the throne of God for all eternity. Jesus could not stay dead. His nature demanded that he rise from the grave. Jesus must die. Jesus must rise again. There is no other way for sinful man 
to be redeemed. So friends, we have a God who demands justice. He will make sure that everything that was made crooked by our sin will be made straight again. All of us fall short of his demands. He's not being unreasonable in what he expects, but the gift of life that he has given to us is great, and we owe him our everything. I hope that the scripture is helping us all to see this morning that the most remarkable thing about Jesus' sacrifice is the resurrection. It is the fact that he rose from the grave on the third day in a display of divine power. Friends, plenty of people have died saving others over the years, have they not? Many human beings have made a sacrifice on behalf of someone else, some for very great causes. A man named Richard Riscorla was the director of security at Morgan Stanley, located in the second Twin Tower building in New York. That tower was struck by an airplane on September 11, 2001. And when his tower was attacked, Rescorla immediately began to implement an evacuation plan that he had been drilling his employees on for months before. Rather than secure his own safety and make his way out of the building as he instructed everyone else to do so, he stayed behind so that those who were confused, those who did not know the way, he could direct them out. Calmly, for, for hours, he instructed, or for Minutes and minutes, he instructed the people to leave right up until the very moment that the tower collapsed and he himself was killed. Doing no small part because of Rescorla's actions, there were a number of people of the 2,500 who made it out of that building who could say they owe their life to his careful planning and his dedication. April 26, 1983, Chernobyl, a great disaster in the history of man. A nuclear plant was about to blow up and it could have been much worse than it actually turned out to be. You might not know that there were three scientists who realized that the chunk of carbon uh, that was highly charged was very near to falling into a pool of water below it which would have caused a steam bomb which, which would have generated massive destruction and sent radioactive particles even farther through the air than it did. These three men decided together that they would dive into the pool of radioactive water and unplug it and drain the pool. They dove in, they drained the pool, and when that carbon finally did fall, it did not fall into water. And, and the disaster that we know of as Chernobyl uh, was likely halved in severity because of the death of those three men. They succumbed to radioactive poisoning just days after they did this incredibly self-sacrificial thing. There are others. Lieutenant Robert... Fox, who served in World War II, Officer Arter Kasparak, a first responder during Hurricane Sandy. Again and again, you can read in the historic records, people who gave their lives to help or save others. But none of those sacrifices changed the course of history like the sacrifice of Jesus Christ did. And while the heroic efforts of those men and women have spared the lives of other people, not one of them overcame the power of death that death had over their own lives. They could not rise from their grave. John 14, 19 reminds us that only Jesus could do this. He says, because I live, you will live also. It is his resurrection that makes our redemption possible. Because he indeed rose again, we might be saved.
Romans 10, 9 through 10, says that if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We believe in the heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. We confess with the mouth that he is who he said he is. And that is how the hope of salvation comes to broken people like us. The women who do not expect to find a risen Savior discovered his tomb empty. And they received divine confirmation from these angelic messengers that the thing they thought was impossible had indeed come to pass. Their response was that they return immediately to the people that had also followed after Jesus Christ and they tell all these other disciples what they have found. And all these other disciples disbelieve them. They still cannot spare hope in this moment. Needing to seed for themselves, Luke tells us that Peter ran to the tomb and found the burial shroud that had wrapped Jesus' dead body up, found it neatly folded and laying where the body had, had been resting. And then he went home, marveling at what he had seen. When you read that word marveling, in the Greek it carries a meaning that isn't quite communicated in the English text. It doesn't just mean that he was amazed and suddenly believed. It meant that he went home confused. He still did not consider the matter settled. The empty tomb did not make him believe. That will come later. The empty tomb itself does not prove that Jesus rose from the dead, friends. Historians throughout the ages have tried to postulate and come up with reasons why the tomb was empty. Perhaps grave robbers stole the body of Jesus. Perhaps the disciples broke in and staged the whole thing. Perhaps they had the wrong tomb. So the empty tomb itself is not all the proof that we need. The post-grave appearances do prove the veracity of Jesus' resurrection, and we will read about them next week. The grave is indeed empty, and not because the body of Jesus was robbed. It is empty because he who died for us lives today. Death is defeated by the everlasting life of the Son of Man. And now we can face death with confidence that death isn't what it used to be for those who believe in Jesus Christ. But evidence, though it is good and well, though these historical details can help someone see the story and understand the story, if you believe in Jesus Christ, it's not just because the evidence was great. If you believe in Jesus Christ here today, it's not just because you looked at all the facts and compared all the religions and you said, this one makes the most sense. If you are here today following after Christ, and if the Holy Spirit is, is working in your heart right now, perhaps you didn't follow Christ before, but now you're considering that perhaps you need the redemption that only Jesus can provide. It is because of one thing. It is because of a faith that God has given to you through his grace. Evidence is for courtrooms, but when it boils down to it, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is beyond the scope of what can be examined under a microscope. It is beyond evidence. If you do not see the Lord God as being real, if you cannot accept in your heart that you are a created being and that he reigns over all that he has made, then this is going to seem far-fetched to you. But it is my hope and prayer that as the scripture is read and as the gospel is preached, that each one of us will grow more and more confident in faith that the Lord God who made us has also got a divine plan 
to redeem us. And that plan all comes through the work and person of Jesus Christ, his son. So what impact does the empty tomb have on you? As you see this tomb empty in the scriptural record, do you immediately think of reasons why it was empty? Not because of a resurrection, but for some logical, reasonable reason. Or perhaps do you doubt and wonder how it could be so, but you want answers. Do you wonder, as as Peter did, why this tomb was empty, but still you struggle to believe and to put your hope in Christ? Or does this empty tomb help you to have hope? Does it give you a sense that God is at work doing something greater than man can understand with his limited mind? The angelic messengers who spoke to the women at the empty tomb did not offer any proof of the resurrection. They simply declared it to be so. He is risen. Faith is not a logical deduction from the tomb being empty. Faith is a response to the declaration of God's messengers and a trust that God does not lie. Dr. James Edwards says, Faith is not the inevitable result of evidence, even good evidence, like empty tombs. Faith cannot be proven. It must be chosen, reckoned on the basis of trust. May the Lord God, who has power over all things, may He be working in your heart in this very moment to give you a faith that you could not dig up on your own. May He help you to see the true things of God, and may He help you to rejoice, even though the truth of God reveals your brokenness. Even though it tells the truth about your sinful heart, may you learn to rejoice in this truth because it is not just condemnation, but it points us to redemption. That through Jesus Christ and His work, not by our deeds, but through His death, burial, and resurrection, we may too walk in a newness of life and have a restored relationship with the God that made us. Would you please bow with me as we close in a word of prayer. God, we thank you for your amazing grace. And we are so honored to be able to come and sing glory to you. Father, there's a reason that this event has endured. There's a reason that the Western calendar is all revolving around the death, burial, life, resurrection of Jesus Christ. He was more than a man. He is more than a man today. And so, Father, we come to rejoice that you have sent one who came to be tempted in all ways like we were tempted. And yet, He did not fall to that temptation as we so often do. We are grateful that though he was esteemed and honored above all, he was willing to sacrifice that esteem by taking the sin of many upon his shoulders and being crucified like a criminal. And he did it out of love. Father, we're thankful that the words that he spoke before he went to Jerusalem were not idle words or empty promises, but that he did indeed rise on that third day and that we can celebrate today the victory he has over sin and over death. Lord, may you be working salvation in the hearts of those who do not yet believe. In the hearts of those of us who do trust you, Lord, may the resurrection reign as our greatest joy and the most complete victory that we have ever witnessed through your scripture. We pray these things in the wonderful name of the one who saved us, Jesus Christ. Amen.